This is the Beyond Belief Sobriety Podcast, where we examine topics of interest to people who seek a secular path to recovery from addictions of all kinds. Today, I have a guest, Dave G. from uh, Scotland, we're going to say. <laughs> How are you, Dave? That's it, John. Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. But yeah, I was out for a run earlier on, so I'm kind of just recovering from that. But yeah, yeah. Very good. Uh, I, I'm going to get through this uh, episode without a translator uh, somehow. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. You've got an accent. <laughs> Yeah, we'll make it. We'll be just fine. Like, yeah, we'll be fine. Yeah. So anyway, language problems aside, and we are speaking the same language, believe it or not. <laughs> um, anyway, Dave, I thought what we would do here is just uh, if you could share your story and I might just heckle you along the way and ask you questions or maybe interject something that I've a similar experience that I've had. What I do know about you is that you've been listening to the podcast for a couple of years. That uh-huh. you, yeah, um, yeah, you and Angela and various other speakers and took a lot from it. Yeah. Cool. And you have just recently started going to secular meetings and you find the language there is suiting you better than what you've had experienced before. Yeah, 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 correctly, correctly, okay. yeah. And um, you coming yeah. up in February, you will be sober 28 years. That's correct. Yeah. It's just a fact. I use it just as a number. <laughs> but okay. yeah, yeah, I'll pat myself on the back for it. But yeah, it's Absolutely. Just Absolutely. And that is all I know about you. So why don't you begin and share your story with us? Okay. Uh, right. I've, as you said there, I've been abstinent off the alcohol for, well, coming up for 28 years. And yeah, I... I began drinking, probably like a lot of people did, in church discos and community centers. And I can look back now in retrospect, and I can see the reasons why I didn't. Sorry, I did drink um, the way that I did, and it was really a lack of self worth towards myself. Um, you know, really low self esteem. But I didn't, you know, label it that, that at the time. You know, I didn't start that. You know, and I've got two brothers as well. I always put this in um, when I'm asked to share. They've never attended Alcoholics Anonymous, as far as I know. So I really believe it was something within my disposition, you know, my personality that led me to going down the route of um, abusing alcohol. So I picked up a, I picked up a drink firstly at the age of, I think it was fifteen, and um, and then I gravitated towards shortly after, in the early nineteen eighties, um, to a to a kind of group um, called uh, the Football Hooligans, really. Football hooligans, and that was a drug in itself, you know, um, football violence. Oh, by I didn't um, get involved in the kind of thuggery that went on. I was the, I was, the, I was the person who would put myself into situations that were really self-defeating, to say the least. Insane, insane. And I say this plenty of times that uh, it was because I didn't, you know, somebody who was healthy would not have done the things that I did. Somebody who felt good about themselves, you know, who felt high self-esteem, self-worth, would not have done. And I like the phrase, when the drink's in, the wit's out. <laughs> so there was no real connection from um, to make those decisions, you know, when you're when you're sober um, at all. Um, and I, yeah, so hospitalised on a few occasions. Um, and I, that, that really was a, it was a catalogue of disastrous things. <laughs> I'm being, I'm using a bit of hyperbole there, but it really was, John. Uh, it was a case of a lot of self-pity. Um, and I was I was gathering a lot of unaddressed mental health issues. You know, there was a suicide attempt at the age of 17. And somebody who was healthy, they would have talked to somebody about that. I didn't. You know, so, 
that's 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 how it went and um but you know there's a lot of stigma though around tied around mental illness and i remember when i was that age um dealing with just mental illness in my family it was something that we never talked about yeah absolutely absolutely um I don't want to really veer too much into my, my own family, but there was, I've spoken to my cousin since then, and there was, you know, there was um, a use of alcohol that really w- that didn't bother on the particularly healthy. And yeah, there was nothing along that lines discussed. And, and um, I, I really wish that my, uh, one of my parents, my parents saw me and said, look, you don't, you're not very well, you know, we'll help you. But there was nothing of that case at all. You know, so I must admit, I felt, yeah, I felt kind of abandoned by them, but that was, my two brothers never felt that. So, I think there was something within me. I say that reluctantly, but there was something within me that was, you know. Sure. Well, I'm sorry for interrupting you, but go ahead. No, no, no. That's no. <laughs> it's fine. It's fine. Um, so, yeah, yeah. I've held the meetings. Um, people went across the glamorous locations and they did that and they did that. For myself, there was nothing of that. I thought, oh, what did I do in my life when I was um, drinking and, and, and uh, taking other chemicals as well, drugs, particularly amphetamines, um, which was not good for my mental health at all. I I really didn't do anything at all. You know, I, I suppose I portrayed an image to people um, and I got this, I think I nurtured it, John. I think it was this, the the, bit, the toughest guy behind the school. You know, um, it, really, it was really just one notorious uh, fight. And then later on, you know, when I got involved in the football, I did some stupid things and it was like a kind of badge of recognition. You know, I did these things. So I knew that people, how perverse is that? But I, th- I kind of knew people would talk about me, you know, in a, in a perverse kind of way, but really self-defeating. And yeah, not really talking or opening up to anybody at all. So I've really felt disconnected, isolated, and uh, really, so I became like a mute. I see that today. I really became like a mute where I really didn't, I really didn't open up to anyone at all. So when I was in the bar, it would be like just Mr. Cool and enigmatic and, uh, and inside, you know, I really felt lost, lost, you know, <laughs> and that continued for a long time. And as I say, getting into, um, getting hospitalized a few times. Um, I remember one time I got mugged outside a bar and the nurse I came to, and I remember saying something about hematoma, which is apparently something that's apparently a bleed on the, the brain or the head or something, that, you know, so and that was the extent that my drinking was taking me to. Was that caused directly by the drinking or was there an accident or? That was caused for me. I look back on it now. Um, yeah, cause and effect. If I hadn't been drinking, that wouldn't have happened. Yeah, so I wasn't. I wasn't sober. I was in. A, I was in a bar, and I was staring at this person in the bar, thinking that I was, you know, Mister Tough Guy. And then I left the bar on my own. And then they must have taken some kind of reprisals, or which I didn't do anything to them, but they must have thought we'll sort him out. And then I came um, in the hospital, and so yeah, the consequences of um, polluting my my. My brain and my, you know, with alcohol, really, you know, but it became such a habit where I look at it like, like vibration, all this stuff, you know, and that stuff, I was really just, if there's low energy, that's what I just became so used to. And uh, it wasn't very, it wasn't very nice at all, like, you know, and uh, yeah, just, just similar, similar consequences, similar events and uh, never letting anybody in at all into my life. And at what point were you starting to think you had a problem? Did you kind of in the back of your mind think that you, that you were having a problem or was it, were you completely unaware? It's kind of a, it's a, it's an odd thing to think back on. I mean, when I look back at my drinking, I think that I was in such denial, you know, that um, in retrospect, in retrospect, I can look back on my drinking and I can say that I knew I had a problem, but I couldn't admit it. But I didn't know that at the time. At the time, all I knew is that I was just trying to find different ways to make it work. 
I wonder what do you do you recall what your mindset was? I just felt so lost for so long. I felt so lost and I felt I know I just could not see a way out of it. It was like a repetition of feeling miserable continually, John, to the point where there was just a sense of, well, okay, groundhog every day, get out of this. It really was. Yeah, absolutely. You know, absolutely. You know, keep doing the same thing, you get the same result. But I just don't know. I didn't I didn't really have the to say. There was no awareness that there could be something different. So, yeah, well, you know, I, I mean, pee in the bed should have been a reason. <laughs> I know. I, we could always look back and think, well, you know, it was obvious that there was a problem, but it wasn't. Uh, I, I understand. That yeah. should have been one big red flag. Yeah. <laughs> but, well, well, I just got used to that. You know, I've, I've, I've said it, you know, to, to, to people, you know, in my life since then. But, you know, that should have been the reason to stop, but it wasn't, you know, and that just became the norm, you know. So at what point did you, did you get help and how did, how did that manifest? How, where did you go? Yeah, good question. I like, uh, you know, I like to hear that because whenever I'm speaking to somebody, I go to the school talks these days, you know, I don't know what to call it over in America. Is it H&I? I think um, we've got PI here, public information. Oh, yeah. They call, they call that talks. They used to, like, public yeah. information for AA. Yeah. 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 You do that? Um yeah, yeah, I enjoy that. Yeah, I've done about four or five um, over the last couple of months. But yeah, I like to give people hope as well, anyone I'm talking to. Yeah, I was just actually on a 12-step call actually about half an hour ago. How did I get help? I think it was myself I realised I had a gambling problem as well. You know, I worked offshore on the oil rigs and I was literally peeing it against the wall, so to speak. That's a phrase we use, you know, just not using it, you know, using the money effectively. So I went to Gamble's Anonymous and uh, somebody there saw that, um, you know, I had a drink problem because when I was asked to share, my brain was just so, I used the cooking analogy, it was boiled, fried, scrambled, pickled, mashed, just uh, all that, all those things there. Probably due to the physical beatings and the, the constant, you know, um, angst and torment that goes along with drinking. So I was going on there, and then he said, why don't you go along to a meeting, which I did. I saw him there, and he introduced me to other people. Now, whether he had decided to do something there in a subtle way to introduce me to AA, but I felt, I just felt that, and I try to avoid the cliches, but I did feel that warmth that I never felt before. And I felt, People were willing to to listen to Dave. People were listen were, were just willing to to give me their time. You know, I never really felt that before in my life. And again, I re- I realized I had to do something different. You know, I had to do something different, and that felt felt different. So, so shortly after, well, I'd continued drinking, and then I realized I need to get Mark sorted out. And I, I went to meetings. And then somebody who was in a treatment centre offered me a place in the treatment centre, which was about, I think it's about 10 or 12 miles outside the city where I stay. And then I was in there for just under five months. Oh, wow. Wow. Was it helpful? It was helpful. It was, yeah. It it gave me an opportunity to mix with people where I'd never, ever done that before. I think I've maybe mentioned that or I've alluded to that, you know, previously when we've been speaking, but I just, you know, I was there around people, but I just never felt, you know, a part, you know, part of things. I was all, you know, you could be so kind of cliche, but if you're in amongst the crowd, you can still feel lonely. That was definitely myself. Whereas in that confine, I never, for example, I never cooked a meal for anybody. Really? <laughs> yeah, you know, all these stuff, 
social skills zero, interpersonal skills zero, um, and doing these little things that people just take for granted. Never done them. So, yeah, but I was quite glad to get out, to be honest. It was a, like a prison sentence in the end. I'm not being too derogatory towards the whole thing, but it was, it was good to, to get out into society. And then that's where things just changed. Yeah. So, so what was your first impression of AA after you started going to meetings? Did you already, did you identify as a secular person or as a religious person? Did any of the God language bother you? Initially, when I came around, no, not at all. When I first came to the meetings, it was more on a way that the God language was kind of, was constantly um, churned out and had no real, no real aversion to it at the time. You know, and and even to this day, you know, the, the word higher power, it doesn't really make that prickly at all. I can kind of see a rationale, you know, to that there. You know, if, if for example, if you know, if I won't help, you know, with any particular part of our lives, I've, I need to protect, I need to connect with that, you know, source, that resource, you know. But at the time, no, not at all. But objectively, or subjectively, I don't know objectively what people would say over the years, but I've never peppered my shells with. Um, you know, and I've got a God in my life and blah, blah, blah. Do you hear a lot of that over there in Scotland and the meetings? Because you would hear. Yeah, and I find, it, I find it bizarre that the Lord's Prayer is read out in some meetings. That I Honestly, John, I find that quite bizarre. Now, do but they anyway, do that? Totally... Do they do that over in, do they do that in Scotland? No, no. Certainly over, over in um, the West Coast and around about the Glasgow area, there's a certainly a, a more higher predominant towards a more kind of sectarian, you know, kind of Roman Catholic, you know, um, Protestant slight divide. But I've, no, I've not really heard that that, that happens. So we just it just ends with the, the serenity prayer. That's uh, when I was in meetings in New York. I think that most of the meetings in New York City are like that. But most of the meetings around here in the mid- Midwest where I live end with the Lord's Prayer. That's the way there. Except for our secular meetings, which are nice. And how did you feel about that? Oh, then? gosh. Well, when I first started, first of all, I was surprised that there had anything to do with God in AA. I didn't know anything about AA other than what I saw in the movies. And there was never anything in the movies about people holding hands and praying, you know. <laughs> so I had a dear aunt uh, who I loved, who I knew was an AA, and uh, she wasn't particularly religious or anything. Um, so I never I never imagined that it was uh, it had anything to do with it. So I was very surprised to see God all over the place. But the first group that I went to, they were... They were pretty good about telling me not to worry about it. And I, I, I didn't identify as an atheist, uh, Dave. I, I didn't know what I was. I didn't have any religious background at all. But I wasn't comfortable with religion because it, I didn't have any familiarity with it. Or And I felt like an outsider. I felt like I couldn't connect to somebody because I didn't know anything about religion. I didn't have that experience. So it was, it was an obstacle for me in that respect. It made me feel like, okay, once again, someplace where I can't fit in because I don't know anything about this. But the people at the meeting were very, very nice to me about all that and really told me not to worry about it too much. But then I went to another group. It was a men's group, and that became my home group. And they were more fundamental about the big book. And all of a sudden the higher power thing and God was becoming uh, and praying and all that stuff was being pushed on me a lot harder. But I was young. And what I did is I just kind of conformed to whatever these people, mostly older, mostly older guys were telling me to do, you know? So that's what I did. And then it took me a long time, like 25 years <laughs> before I realized oh, this is bullshit. <laughs> I got to be myself. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I think it's taken me a, a long time to realize that I suppose in life, you know, and, and recovery, you know, and I suppose the word recovery is used because, you know, you know, I'm, I'm not drinking uh, or drugging, 
and my life does involve um, some hopefully healing and, and getting becoming hopefully a, a better person. For myself, it involves not just conforming. You know, I've been saying this quite recently, more and more openly. I don't need to conform, and that's actually the worst thing that it can do for it my soul is. is to conform. It is and absolutely, comply. and I've learned that too. That we're, if you're communicating with, working with, helping somebody who is uh, just getting into recovery, they need to find their own way to experience and express it. And the best thing that we can do is help somebody achieve whatever goals they have in their, in, in being a sober person and not dictate that they have to, you know, follow a particular path. Yeah. Yeah. What, what if things, yeah, disturbing. Could you say that there? Yeah. At times, yeah, it disturbs me sometimes is that, when people say you need to believe in a God or you need to believe in a higher power, you know, and, and I, you know, it's fine, whatever anybody wants to believe, but please explain why and tell me the rationale and tell me, it's like, you know, this higher power when people roll that out, explain what that is to you then. Don't just please just give it, you know, as a, as a, as a statement that somebody has to conform to without any substance behind it about what it is. You know, you, know, you mentioned something when you first contacted me that, when you start going to the couple things, you, you mentioned this word language a couple of times that when you listen to the podcast that I did with Tara, that you mentioned that you liked the language that we were using and that, that your experience with these um, secular meetings, you also like the language. And I think that's really important because there is a certain language, a lingo in recovery and in particular in Alcoholics Anonymous, that word higher power, for example. That's a word that I didn't grow up using. It's not natural in my vocabulary to use the word higher power. So my language now is that, okay, those aren't my words. That's not how I describe things. And I just speak in normal, regular language, which for me would mean that other people help me. Other people help me. Are they a higher power? I don't know. They're not a higher power. If you want to call it that, fine. But they're just people who help me. You know, and that's language and that's the language. But when I, but for so long, I was in that lang, I was in a, in that culture where I learned, I had to speak their language and the higher power is one of those terms. Yeah, and I like what you said there. I had to speak that language, and I don't know when it when it happened for myself, but I realised this isn't good for my soul here. When I'm feeling either slightly, I'm going to be shamed or guilt tripped, or I'm going to have the rolling eyes because I'm not conforming. I think I'm one of the few in my favour who say openly in meetings where I'm from, you know, I don't revere, I don't revere the two founders of AA simply. Simply because it takes away from the story that I have. It takes away, it's like places, and it taps into my codependency as well. It, it places them on a pedestal that their story is more better than mine's. It's not. No. You know what? I've come to realize that, and not just with AA, but just like history in general, sometimes it's better not to focus on the people, but just focus on whatever ideas they had or whatever movement came out of whatever they did because you know if you put people on a pedestal they're always going to they're always going to fail no they're all human beings are have their um you know weaknesses and their bad points and and also it becomes kind of like a cult when you focus on a person rather than the ideas so like with AA for example if all we did was focus on the founders it's like that, you know, we have to somehow replicate what they did. But if we instead just kind of focus on the ideals of what AA has become and our, what our recovery is, I think it's a little bit better. But the, the, I'm just kind of formulating those thoughts here recently. 
No, yeah, I agree. And um, I try to, in a way that um, ask for me to help them, um, I try to put forward the principles, you know, um, you know, and 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 and, uh, and also I've got to be mindful of myself on a personal level. I'm not there to be Mister Shining Knight in Shining Armor, or Mister Virtuous, you know, and that could be detrimental to me as well. I'm probably better to just try and practice some uh, things that I never did before, and I like that. I like that. Um, from probably step seven um, and the A's, you know, language of, you know, being aware of where we were, the not so good habits, and then just simply try to practice something different because otherwise I'm going to focus on the A language with the defects or whatever. Or, you know, it's like, I think I read somewhere, I've actually accumulated a fair library of um, secular literature, which I really Oh, like. yeah, you mentioned that. I'd be interested to hear what your favorites are like, to be honest. Oh, my gosh. Okay, I, I I don't. It's hard to pick a favorite, but I will tell you that one of the first books that I read was uh, Maria Hornbacher's "Waiting: A Nonbeliever's Higher Power," I believe is what it's called. Waiting, and that book might not be my cup of tea now, but at the time when I was kind of starting on this journey, it was really important to me because. I thought that I still needed some sort of a spiritual um, language, and that book she helps someone who's agnostic find their own spirituality or their own way to connect. It's a beautiful book, and I still love it. But that was one of the first books that I read. Then another book that I really liked was it's actually written by a guy by the name of Bill W. And I think it's called I think it's called the Secular Twelve Steps. Yeah, the yeah, Secular just Twelve Steps. God, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's a good book. It's a small book, but I, but I, what I like about that is Bill is a, um, he teaches, I think, biology. So he's a, he's a scientist. He teaches biology in a college. So he's got this scientific brain, and he's talking about, in the first part of the book, he's talking about addiction from a scientific perspective. And then he goes into the steps, and he, he breaks them down in components like he's, as you would go through your recovery. So when you're starting off in the beginning – and then you go and, and and you as you get better and you advance and anyway it's just really it's really a well done book it's been a while since I've read it that's a that's a really good book and then just for uh, meeting topics um, I would use uh, Joe's book Beyond Belief Agnostic Musings for Twelve Step Life a book that I recommend for women is the Alternative Twelve Step a guy I can't I like that one actually. but I I like it too but in particular the most of the women that I know in my group really like that book it's very relatable it's written by two women. And uh, so it's 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 a really good book. So yeah, there's a lot of them out there. Uh, what are your favorites? Yeah, yeah, it's just you know, just like that one um, by um, the Alternative Twelve Steps by Martha. And yeah, Martha remember. Cleveland yeah. and RSG. Yeah, I yeah think, and another yeah. woman. Yeah, and I, I like the way she she describes. Um, well, she mentions the Latin word for spirit. It's just vigor, and there's another couple of words. So just energy, you know, and you know. Um, I like that. Um, I've recently got Serge Pringle. I think you did. You have him on. Oh yeah, um, boy, those are steps. good. Serge Pringle. Yeah, the pra- yeah the pra- is mm. it the practical twelve steps? Um, yep. 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 He is so cool because he is. He looks at those steps. He's a life coach and a therapist, and he uses those steps not for alcoholics, but just for people who want to affect change in their life. And he fell in love with the steps because he thought they were a great way to affect change. And then he's rewritten them over the years. You know, he's kind of improved upon them over the years. So yeah, that's a pretty interesting book too. And I like uh, Roger C's, um, is it a little, 
the little book. Yeah, because I just like the four people. I don't think they're affiliated with um, 12-step programs, which is okay. Yeah, it's fine. But they're certainly renowned in a particular field. One's, um, I know there's a famous um, particular person who's got a film out, Galba Mate, and I think another three, or three others. But I like their different take on the steps. I like that as well. I'll tell you one of my favorite books that's not necessarily one of the secular literature, but it's The Unexpected Joy of Being Sober. And I would check that out if I were you. It's Catherine Graham, I think. And anyway, it's, it's a really good book. And it's secular because she never talks about God, but it's not intentionally secular. It's a very modern take on recovery. I just like the practicalities of, you know, for myself being sober, you know, I never connected, you know, and uh, for myself, I just like the practicalities of just being a human and finding out ways where I can, you know, you know, being aware of where my ego's coming to play, where it's where this fear coming to play. And then it's stopping me from connecting with people, you know, and helping them or helping myself as well. I don't know if I ever expected this particular God or deity, but when I hear people say that, you know, I'm thinking, is that them abdicating responsibility for really, you know, making the effort to connect with people? Just, yeah. Well, tell me about the secular meetings you go to. When did you start going and are they on? Are they online or what's the story behind that? Like a lot of people... Over the last year and a half, I started to go uh, on Zoom. And how did I, yeah, I was actually thinking before we did the podcast um, this evening, how did I start going to secular? I really can't remember how, what it happened. It could have been where I was on a meeting, but I certainly was exploring stuff before, before, before. Um, so you kind of knew they existed? Yeah, yeah, I did. Uh, yeah, yeah, I did. I did. Yeah. Well, yeah, and you were listening to this podcast too for a couple of years. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's right. I was listening to yourself as well. And it's just been a kind of um, evolution since then, if that's the, the right word. And I go to a movie probably sometimes a couple a day because they're so convenient to go to, um, particularly um, one called uh, Tosnua. I wish I knew what the Irish translation was. Yeah, that's like, you know, the Irish one, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, really friendly um, group. And um, yeah, they've got them on every day. It's been it's been, it's been really helpful for me to just, uh, again, for the language point of view, be able to just be just be more frank and honest rather than feeling I've got a partic- to a particular line and say a particular thing. When really the secular stuff uh, yeah, it just comes from a more free expression. Tell me this, Dave. How, how have you been doing with um, the, the how the world has changed, changed because of this pandemic and especially how we experience our recovery? How are you doing with all with all of this? Have you noticed a change within yourself about how you think about, you know, meetings and and recovery and the importance of connection with people? What what, what do you think is going on? Or do you, have you even reconciled whatever change or whatever thoughts you have about this? When the when COVID was, I suppose it's kind of lockdown and periods last year. Yeah, you had some severe actually, lockdowns, much more than we have in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and I was actually off work for a period of time as well because of COVID. Um, I, I decided to get a structure to my day because I just knew if not, you know, as we know, you know, um, it's, it's uh, we can just kind of be lazy and before we're not, well, you know, I'm, I'm kicking it. That's a good habit. So for myself, when that happened last year, I would make a purposeful point of trying to learn my keyboard 
I would make a purposeful point of doing exercise. I would make a purposeful <laughs> Good for you. point Good for you. of- I just now started doing that. Like a, a year and a half, I wasn't getting any exercise. And now for like the last, I, this is like week two. And, but I feel, I feel great, <laughs> you know? <laughs> to be honest, John, um, yeah, yeah, exercise is my, um, yeah, I need, yeah, I love my dopamine fix. I just love it, you know? And it really does. It just, it's, it's just, it takes the box of um, medicine. It know, makes really. a, huge difference and what kills me is i so i'm i like to run and i've been running for god since i guess i was in my 30s so over 20 years i've been running but i haven't always been real consistent about it but what kills me is when i'm really consistent about it and do it on a regular basis i love it i love the i love it when i'm doing it i love it after i'm done with it i like the experience of how it kind of clears my mind everything i like the way it makes me i like everything about it but then something happens and I stop and I forget about all how much I like it. Because when you go back, it's kind of hard again because it's like, oh crap, I can't do this like I used to do, you know? <laughs> so <laughs> like right now, I'm just kind of accepting because I'm kind of getting back. I hadn't run for a couple of years. So I'm just kind of getting back to th- thinking like, okay, I'm just going to accept where I'm at now. You know, I, if I, and I'm, I'm, I'm happy with where I'm at now. And that's kind of a nice little lesson for life too, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'd, I'd say the same as well. But, but also, whether it's good for me or not, I don't know. I always think, well, okay, what can I try and do? What can, what can I try and do different or improve? I've um, I've been doing outdoor swimming as well. You know, I'm going in the sea in the cold. Like really that? Is, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've been going in skins without the wetsuit. I could never um, do that yet. That no, no, <laughs> you, now wait, you jump in there without a wetsuit? Yes. <laughs> oh my yes. god. But, yeah, but you, you must have heard of Wim Hof and all that. But to be honest, there's lots of things um, that I'd recommend to people, you know, even in even early recovery, you know, meditation, for example. Uh-huh. I don't think people need to wait till they get step. No, away, they don't. You know? It's simple. And that's another thing. Meditation is very, very good for me too. And it's, an, it's just like exercise. When I'm doing the, med- if, I, if I'm meditating regularly, I, I, I enjoy all the benefits. I think it's great. But if I stop, I kind of forget all of that and it's really hard to get back. It's just a matter of, I think for me, having a good habit, it's hard to start, but once I start it, I can keep it going. But <laughs> those good habits are just, just keep them going, you know, whatever it is. I, I don't know. I just have never had that consistency with it, with any of that over, but I can, you know, I might go for a couple of years and be pretty consistent, but then after, then I might go a year without being consistent. So it's kind of, that way. Anyway, I'm kind of digressing on other subjects, but I'm very interested in about the public information work that you do. And is that through um, the service structure in AA that you're doing it? Yeah, I'm, I'm aware there's opportunities to speak at schools. So, you know, I, I'm, aware, I'm aware of the person who does that and I really, really enjoy it. You know, I, the last one I did, um, I stood up there and I said, I never thought I'd be in a position <laughs> where I was speaking to you guys you know, because um, we don't do it. <laughs> I didn't think at the age of 14 that I would have led the lifestyle that I did and, and been able to speak. I didn't ever think I'd be speaking in a podcast here just now, but I, I am. Know, it's I fine. Know. <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> I never dreamed of this either. <laughs> no, <laughs> I was going to, sorry, I'll try and I'll, I'll jump back to the PI because I am willing to talk about that. Later. I was interested. You're the interviewee, interviewer, and I'm the interviewer, but I mean, what's the... Is there a couple of things or anything, you know, since you've done, since you've been sober there, you, you never thought you'd been able to do? Oh, well, first of all, I'm really, an, I'm very, I'm, I'm very introverted. I'm very shy. I'm very, um, if I'm, if I'm around people, if I'm around people, um, it's really difficult 
for me to like do small talk and stuff. Right. But for some reason I can sit here and do a podcast and have 10,000 people download it and listen to a conversation and just enjoy it. You know? So I don't know. I don't know. It's hard for me to understand why I can be one way around people. And then I can be so, um, I enjoy these conversations, but yeah, this is something I never thought I could ever do. And this happened by accident. What happened was back in 2015, I was on a podcast and it was a lot of fun. I was a guest and it was a lot of fun. And then I was going to start this website that Roger C wanted me to start. And it was called AA Beyond Belief. And I liked the podcast so much. I thought I would like to do a podcast myself. And I knew nothing about podcasting, but I thought, you know, this website was going to have people who would write articles and submit articles and stuff. I thought we could have those people as for guests. But what I ended up doing is having people from all kinds of secular AA groups come on as guests and share their stories like what we're doing now. And I just fell in love with it. So, but this is something I never expected. And now it's like the biggest part of my recovery. You know, I I don't really go to very many meetings anymore. This is my meeting today talking to you, (laughs) you know? Yeah. It really has enhanced my, um, I suppose it's a recovery. I try to avoid the kind of glib statements, but yeah, it has enhanced my life, you know, listening to you and Angela and, and over the, the period of a year and a half or whatever. And uh, the other guests you had on, I like the one you had recently with, we are not all egomaniacs. I've tried to get the book in the UK, but yeah, yeah, but I can't find it. Um, yeah, she's good. Yeah, I, But anyway, yeah, back um, to your PI. Yeah. So yeah, PI. What, how old are these kids that you're talking to? Yeah, the ones that I spoke to on, oh God, what's the was it Thursday? Thursday. They were actually, which is unusual, they were 18. Okay. So we would class that as probably 60 year. But previously, they've been 13, 14, you know, you know, quite young. Um, I suppose you wonder, you know, how much information are they willing to take in? But I suppose, you know, you, you can only do your best and, you know, and you never know what seed might have been planted. I do remember when I was, when I was younger, probably maybe even actually earlier age than them, I remember Paul Kossoff, his dad came in from Free. He was a drummer in the band Free. Oh, okay. And his dad came in and did a similar talk, but obviously it didn't have maybe much of an impression <laughs> on me. Like, but <laughs> I don't think we ever had a talk like that when I was in high school. It could have made a difference. I was already becoming a problem drinker uh, when I was in high school, but um, by the and really by the time I was nineteen, I, I had a full blown problem then. But I, do you get any kind of reaction from the kids after you talk? Yeah, they really, yeah, they appreciate summer. It's, it's a bit like pulling teeth, some of them, you know, getting questions from them. And that's the part that I really enjoy when we go along. And we've made more of an emphasis to the facilitator um, who organizes it uh, and, and um, discussion with ourselves. She realizes it's a good thing to let the teachers know, you know, hey guys, you know, the kids, you know, you're going to be asked some questions here. If you can think of some questions, that's, that's the part that I like, you know, where, you know, they are. And you know, the thing about it that, that is good, even, even if, if there's a kid there that is, um, having already starting drinking and maybe even having problems, but, but is not really recognizing it and doesn't want to even, doesn't want to even entertain the idea. 10 years down the road, he might remember your talk five years down the road, two years down the road, he might remember your talk. And so, you know, you are kind of lighting that spark. And just what you're saying there for myself, that's why I stay sober. 
today is, you know, and I'm not that I needed it, the, the myth smash, but, you know, life has its ups and downs. My mood has its ups and downs sometimes and there's stressors and the things that happen. But, you, you know, I'm able to deal with them. But also, being sober, I would never be able to do these things that I've done. You know, um, today, like, like I said, I was on a, a phone call that, you know, just before the started talking, you know, from somebody who's looking, you know, I would never be able to do that. And I think I'm quite good in that area, speaking to somebody and being able to discern what they're saying and, you know, and, and kind of give them a little bit of motivation and encouragement. So, yeah, and I say to people, um, the guys that, I'm, that I try to help, just trust the process. I go to Toastmasters today, John, you know, um, and for a guy like me, who was like a mute and could hardly stand two sentences together, you know, when I got sober, public speaking, you know, you know. They say that's the biggest fear that human beings have is yeah. public speaking. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I can quite see because uh, if you let the ego in, if you let the anxiety fear in, you know, you're on rocky ground. But it's it's not, I mean, that was one of my first self-help books that I, um, I read, you know, Susan, Susan Jeffers, Feel the Fear and Do It Anyway. And that. That is such a great principle behind that, you know, because I used to think, you know, when you see people who are great speakers that they're, they're feeling no anxiety. And I've heard it's not the case. They're still feeling it, but they're not letting it overwhelm them. Right, right. You know, sometimes before I do a, before I do a podcast interview, I feel a bit of anxiety and nervousness and it's kind of just energy that I work with. But like on this conversation with you, I didn't feel that. This type of interview for me is re very relaxing because I'm just having coffee talking with a friend in recovery. You know, I don't have to worry about, did I read your book right? Um, do I understand what you're, you know, what you're trying to <laughs> yeah. communicate, you know, yeah. and all of that. But Will I love talking to authors. Did you read that chapter? Did you yeah. read that part? Did... <laughs> so there's a lot less pressure yeah. and I just enjoy it. I just, I enjoy it. And like I say, this is, this is my meeting too. Yeah. And I have, I have, um, I have questions slightly. I've not went, to, I've only went to about six face-to-face -face meetings since lockdown. And part of me thinks, oh, should I be going along? And if I'm being really honest, I'm totally fine with Zoom. I yeah, really am. A lot know, of people are. With, yeah, yeah. And I'm fine doing things that where I where I'm like connecting, outdoor swimming, exercising, dancing when I can. Um, what kind and, of dancing do you do, by the way? Well, it's been Argentine tango for the last uh, eight oh, years. Cool. Uh, yeah, yeah. So it's been eighteen. 18 years of me dancing. Now that's good for you too, isn't it? Words. That's good exercise. I totally. To a degree, that, the tango, but I suppose it's the combination of meeting people uh, and the cognitive part of learning, you know, from that as well, particularly the tango. See, it's fun that you can enjoy that kind of stuff sober. No, absolutely. And again, with that, um, that cliche of a statement, you know, just trusting the process. I mean, I mean, 18 years ago, I mean, what was it like? Well, it was nine, eight or nine years sober. But I decided, hmm, yeah, uh, what, what will I do here? I need to do something different, you know. And a friend suggested, okay, let's yeah, let's go on to dancing. Um, but he went, he didn't, he, he stopped going, and I went along, you know, and I continued going, and it's just just great. Now, before we leave, I want to ask you something. You mentioned when you contacted me that you did a podcast in relation to Toastmasters. Can you talk about? Can you what what was that about? Well, and what was your experience with that? Would you mind going into that a little bit? Because I'm just curious. No, not at all. Yeah. And Toastmasters, you go through different things called levels. And uh, I'm on level four, so there's only one more level, level five, to fulfill the the, um, the criteria of finishing off the, the pathway. It's called it's called Presentation Mastery, but there's, there's 12 different pathways. And uh, out of all the electives, I decided to try and do a podcast. And my mentor... 
um, who's done them for many years, he, he did help him, but I did do the a lot of the technical work on it, which I'd never done before as a piece of software called Audacity. Basic stuff, but I was able to merge in my voice and the music in the background. Hopefully the music I've done is copyright free, but yeah, yeah, it's one of those things you've got to be mindful of. Um, so it's called... It's called Health and Wealth. It's on Spotify, but it's really basic. So I'm really just looking to take it forward and do really, really just similar stuff we're doing here, but talking to people in any area of life. I've got quite a few friends, you know, on Facebook or whatever, on social media who are in the political field, political world, um, and the dancing, you know, and in just uh, in, yeah. and swimming as well. So. Well, it's cool. That's fine. It's called Health and Health and Wealth. Health and Wealth. Don't health and Wealth. That's another episode of Beyond Belief Sobriety. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to support our podcast with recurring monthly contributions, head on over to patreon.com slash beyondbeliefsobriety or become a member of our YouTube channel. If you'd like to make a one-time contribution, then visit our website beyondbeliefsobriety.com and click on the donate button. I do appreciate your support. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again real soon with another episode of Beyond Belief Sobriety.